Hello and welcome to another episode of the Create Magic Podcast. This is an installment of the Creative Weirdo segment where I talk to all kinds of different folks about creative and weird stuff. And today I have a lovely conversation with my new friend Kate. I had a blast talking to Kate about video games for way longer than I planned. We got into it just because I was asking about uh, certain things with Teddy's new fascination with Minecraft. And Kate has been playing games for a lot longer and a lot more into it than I am. And it was just a perfect access point to talking about weird stuff and the paranormal and creativity in general. Kate is a wonderful artist and a great puppeteer, just a all-around positive person to talk to, and I just had so much fun. I left this conversation feeling great, and I think y'all will do the same. So yeah, sit back and enjoy this wonderful conversation. Check out Kate's wonderful artwork on her Instagram and everything linked below. Thank you again for being here and listening to these super fun talks with creative weirdos. Have a great day, and I'll be talking to you all tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for being here. I'm really stoked to talk to you today. Hey, I, thanks for having me. Totally. I'm so glad you've been so understanding and flexible because we've had to <laughs> postpone this a few times. Life's been crazy, but mm-hmm. all good stuff, you know. Um, but we were just talking because my six-year-old, a constant topic of this podcast, has uh, <laughs> recently entered the interest of video games. And that randomly came up when we first started chatting here. And you were just explaining to me how there's all these different uh, kind of formats of games these days that are just kind of completely different than what I picture as your traditional video game. And that kind of gets me excited because I think the way that we interact with playfulness is really important. And I was wondering if you could start by explaining this video game oh, yeah. where you're stamping passports as the main, <laughs> as the main action yeah. for to get, get this rolling. Cause I really thought that was interesting. Okay. Um, well, we were talking about how um, I've always been a PC gamer and um, no shade against consoles. It's just where I started my siblings and I started there like playing the old point and click adventure games And I think one of the things that's kind of interesting about being a PC gamer is you really have access to just whatever somebody programs and codes and puts out there. And um, so the game I was talking about is called Papers, Please. And I, I believe it's been around since about 2016. And I only recently kind of kind of got into it. And it's really interesting because you play from the perspective of the main character and it's a very simple screen and all you see is your desk and the people who walk into it. And what you are is an immigration officer at a booth at the border of this um, fictional like Eastern Bloc country. It's called Aristotska. So you, you are an Aristotskin and there it's just at the end of a war and so people are now coming home or immigration has started again 
And it's a really deceptive game because, you know, some people like that, that serotonin boost of just um, like resource management games where you just like Mm -hmm. dig things up or, or collect things or craft things. So this kind of starts out a little bit like that. So people come into your booth and they show the passport and it's your job to make sure all the information is right on the passport. Like it's not expired and stuff like that. And you, you stamp them like yes or no. You either let them into Aristotska or you send them away. And so it starts off really innocuously. And then your second day, you're just stamping away. You're like, okay, this is just going to be like a sim game or something. And um, someone hops the border and sets off a bomb. And it sets off this whole story that's only revealed as it goes on in the limited view of your character. And it's amazing to me the emotional like aspect of it because as time goes on, you get to decide who you let in and who you send away. Like there are people that come through and they slip you notes like, I'm being trafficked, please don't let the person behind me in. But the person that they, they mention technically has all their papers in order. So if you deny them, you get docked money. But if you let them in, it could change what happens. And the thing is you have like two kids and an aunt and an uncle and like an extended family that you are working to support. So it puts you in this really amazing emotional place of just like having to make those decisions. And, you know, the thing about me is, Um, I have (laughs) incredibly fine tuned suspension of disbelief. Like my empathy is off the charts. So like the longer I played this game, the more upset I was getting. And to the point that I like Mm -hmm. told my husband what was going on and I'm like, I don't know what to do. here. (laughs) (laughs) But like the thing is, it's, it's, you know, it's a quote unquote game, but it put me in an experience that people really go through in, in a way I could never fathom and hope that I never have to fathom. And I think that's really important because, you know, reading teaches empathy, um, art teaches empathy, but I think video games, um, are an art form that's coming up. That's really able to, to give you that extra boost of really experiencing it because you can see it, you can feel it, you you are the character or you are responsible yes. for the health and well-being of the character. And you know, if something happens, it's really upsetting. You know, I think it's I think it's valuable. No, totally. I love that perspective on video gaming. And you just made me think of so many things that I would love to address via that that description of this amazing sounding game. And one of them that's like right off the bat, the way you ended that made me think of Robert Anton Wilson's idea of reality tunnels and this idea that you're Mm -hmm. supposed to kind of like shift your worldview and see what it's like from all these different perspectives and collect what's valuable to you from those different reality tunnels to formulate your own kind of worldview and, and kind of bypass the idea that everybody is seeing things the same way and understand that there's a ton of variation out there. 
And the video game aspect, the way you just described, allows you to really live in that reality tunnel for an hour or 20 minutes or however long you're playing that video game. And that's there's something special to that. I talk a lot about the idea that comics and sequential art are Mm -hmm. a very powerful media because of the way that your imagination is called on to fill in these gaps between panels and that the the magic in comics happens where there's nothing in between those gutters and your brain is filling in the time or the action or whatever that gap is left for and i feel like comics are more impactful because of that and if you take that to its logic, logical conclusion, it would be video games. It would be you're you're kind of called to, you know, not as much on the imaginational side as far as filling in vision visuals and all of that, but you're called to actually participate in this imagination imaginal event. And there's something really special to doing that outside of the way that you think about with normal video game structure where there's a winner and there's a loser, there's a bad guy, a good guy. I love that they're taking that away from it almost. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there are so many art forms that I think are powerful and maybe have a little bit of nuance to them. Like you talked about comics and sequential art and how, and in a way, you know, I know a lot of people say certain mediums aren't equal. And to me, I think they all serve different purposes. So Mm -hmm. when I use the word level up, I'm just kind of using it for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. So like you have reading a book, right? You, you are in there, it's all imagination and then you craft whatever you see. Right. And then you level up to sequential art where you're given a more solid reality of this but you're still, like you said, in between the panels, you're still able to sort of create that reality. But then, yeah, the one of the untapped things and I think underappreciated things with video games is you're not just imagining it. You are right, right there. Like yeah. you are you are held responsible for what happens. And a lot of people like I'm I would say I'm a moderate gamer. You know, it's 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 on my favorite things to do, but I don't just play everything that comes out. And the Mm -hmm. things I do tend to play tend to be like papers, please, or point and click adventure games. Or, um, I really like, and I'm so bad with names. There's this one studio that did, uh, a game series called Max Payne, which was a shooter, but also this weird sort of like twin peaks fever dream. And Yeah. So like there's all kinds of stuff in there. And um, like one of my very, very favorite games ever is a semi-recent game and it's called Disco Elysium. And you play this character that wakes up after a drunken bender and he can't remember anything. So you craft his story as you play. And sometimes it's based on like invisible dice rolls. So things don't always go how you want. And as I was playing this game, I got so invested in wanting this guy to succeed. Like I didn't want him to become a loser and sad and all these things. And I just wanted him to succeed so much. Like I, I fought for that character and it, you know, you just, you just get sucked in, you know, people have their favorite characters and their favorite games and you're like right there with it, you know? Absolutely. And I I love that you pointed out 
the, at the beginning of that that it's not that one medium is better than another they just all perform different functions i'm a huge uh, McLuhan fan and i think mm-hmm. that the way we intake fiction and narratives is very important and the way that the way that we ingest our mythologies impacts the mythology themselves in a real way. But I don't think that necessarily means one is better than the other. I just think that it's important to recognize those differences and kind of use the appropriate ones, depending on what the goal of the media is. And empathy mm-hmm. is one of those goals that I think about a lot in my artwork, in the stuff I read. And the way that you're explaining these video game interactions, it seems like they are just an empathy generator if you use them correctly and I love that yeah and I think that goes back to some of the stuff with with play because like it took me a little while to be totally okay with kind of how I am like I'm a very goofy and playful person Um, at the same time I'm extremely professional in my day job and with what I have to do so they're not mutually exclusive Mm -hmm. um And I just was a lot of like, you know, okay, this is just the way I am. It's fine. And I was lucky to grow up in a very supportive environment of that. And I was lucky to have friends in high school and stuff that still embraced an element of play. Like we made swords out of PVC pipe and foam and would go out and, you know, like fight each other and stuff. And we were 17 years old, you know, like, so I was really lucky with that. And it wasn't until I kind of got further out into the world that I realized not everyone allows themselves that. And you don't have to be, you know, I'm, I'm a puppeteer and I hang out with some totally weird people and I love them. And you don't have to be like just off the wall about things, but, but like playing a game or reading a book or watching a film or, or even just having a moment of play between people that are important to you, Mm -hmm. um, allowing yourself to have that, I think is, is really, really important. Me too. And I couldn't have said it better because that's (laughs) so like, Everybody defined, I I used to love Andrew WK and I used to love the uh, speeches he would give about partying and how uh, partying is not just like a kegger or it's, there's a very self-reflective version of it. And partying could be exactly what you were saying as far as just reading a book by yourself at home, if you have the right mindset about it. I've talked Mm -hmm. about a lot about how I was a TV kid growing up and I feel like there is an artful way to consume any type of media and there's an intentional way of doing it. And if you can, you know, be mindful of how you're taking things in and insert those little novelty injections and playfulness, even if it is something silly, like I mentioned, I can't remember a recording, but like I, I watch my kid walk down the street and interact with these environments that are meant just to like, here's a handrail you're meant to just hold on to and, you know, not fall down. But he's like hanging off of it and swinging all around it and like jumping over cracks and just interacting with the world in a way that's so much more creative and enriching. And if I could just take 2% of that, not that I want to walk down the street, like swinging off things or, you know, <laughs> but just, just have that mindset of being a little bit more playful with the way I see the world. I feel like my interactions with my neighbors are better with the cashier at the gas station. Like, I feel like it just makes us nicer to each other in certain ways. And I, I kind of want to go back and ask you about that idea where 
growing up, like the games that I played, whether they were video games or um, just outboard games or tag, or they always had this very winner loser dichotomy to me. To me, mm-hmm. and the more that I interact with my kids, I find myself trying to find. Uh, games and activities that don't necessarily have that distinct like very hardcore winner loser dichotomy to it and do you is there more of a prevalence of that in video gaming these days are people thinking about those ideas um i think they are but i think when you use the overall term gamer i think there are lots of different flavors like Mm -hmm. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. But like I said, I'm probably, you know, on a gamer scale of one to 10, I'm probably like a six because I am like aware of new games. I have my favorites. I know the genres, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be winning any tournaments anytime soon, but I do it enough that I would feel comfortable being like, yes, I know about this. Um, And I think that is still a very big thing for a lot of people you know um one of the few competitive games i enjoy playing is i actually like overwatch and that's a skirmish game and that's one of the reasons i like it because i can get in there for 10 to 15 minutes and just do the thing you know but i think another reason i like it is the characters are sort of cartoony and it's not like ultra ultra violent and there's storylines and everything Mm -hmm. but um there definitely still is an achievement and a winning and losing aspect that is in a lot of games. Um, And for some people, I still believe that's really important. I mean, even talking about PC gaming, um, if you, uh, I'm a member of Steam, which is like the gaming platform right now where everybody sells their games and stuff. On Steam, they have achievements, which are little things that happen in games or whatever and you get this little badge and it's on your profile and for me it's sometimes funny because I play these you know non-competitive games at all you know they're not competitive there's nothing about it but I'll do something and I'll get a little pop-up you got an achievement and like I don't care one iota but then sometimes it's it's funny like some of the games like you know people are just trying to think of steam achievements <laughs> you know like <laughs> you did this weird thing congratulations yep. you know i'm like oh that's kind of funny but so like the gamification of games is is <laughs> like what I, I don't know it sounds so buzzwordy but i think it's still something that's that's really prevalent um from what i see as someone who doesn't do that as often like mm-hmm. from from the outside looking in and just seeing other games and how they they try to incorporate that like there'll be a game that's you know like papers please or whatever and for some reason there's a hardcore mode why is there a hardcore mode i don't know because somebody wants to like just achieve the shit out of papers please you know like so that makes sense that makes a lot of sense so like I'm, I'm answering the best I can from that perspective. And I would say, yeah, probably because like it's popping up in places where I don't expect it. Like the competitiveness. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the more that you talk about this, the communal aspect of all of these things is really interesting to me because obviously I, I talked to you before. I've been out of video games since PlayStation 1, I think, was the last thing. And I never was really the first. The only PC games I ever remember playing was Commander Keen, which I don't oh, know if anyone knows that or if that's like a thing yeah. people actually played. And uh, que- it went from that to like Quest. I remember, or Mist. I remember playing the Mist. CD-ROM, mm-hmm. the first missed like puzzle game and that was like all the experience so when my kids getting into this for the first time it's like learning this whole new world to me and I've been thinking about this idea of uh, when we were talking before we were started recording you brought up the idea of the Beatles and how they were this giant cultural shift and I've been thinking a lot about how there's not really the opportunity for those giant cultural shifts anymore like there couldn't really be a new Beatles in from what I can see, in my opinion, of the media landscape. You know what I mean? But gaming does seem like it might have an aspect that allows for these giant cultural shifts in a way that uh, cable television used to. Like, I, Mm -hmm. I think there was something special to the way that in the 90s and before, there was much more of a consumption of media that happened simultaneously. And then you had this, like, base point of something to talk about with, to most people in the world and there was always like niches and fandoms and all of that but in general it was a much more it was much easier for everybody to consume the same mythologies and now you have to have seven different subscriptions you have to have ungodly amounts of time to consume everything and even when i'm talking to my six-year-old about what other kids in his class like there's so Mm -hmm. much variety and it varies so much and everybody's on these completely different pages from a fictional point and that's interesting to me and i'm wondering if you think or see games as a way that might be that that idea has shifted towards like the gaming community or if I'm misreading that completely. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I hadn't thought about that before, but that's a really good point because, you know, I, and I like how you use the phrase cultural shift because sometimes things are enduring or artists are enduring because they were the first of something it it mm-hmm. it doesn't mean they were terrible but you know you look back on it and you're like i mean going back to the beatles at the time they were scandalous and you look at it now you're like what yep. like oh. that that was upsetting <laughs> like <laughs> only show elvis from the hips up never the hips down you never the hips get down people that horny we can't have it <laughs> oh yeah absolutely and i mean you talk about shifts in media and and all that like there are i i feel like there are epochs in media and um as we move forward it's it's getting that variety is a little bit more difficult like having that thing that's like the cultural shift like the 80s all the fantasy movies and, you know, as a puppeteer, I'm super into them. But you had, like, mm-hmm. Legend, The NeverEnding Story, The Dark Crystal, yeah. Labyrinth, you know, uh, just all Willow. Like, Oh, yeah. And there, you look at it and you're, like, there is a flavor of fantasy movies in the 80s. And it defines that. And because, like you said, it's not as easy for everyone to consume the same media. I think it's really hard now to have those, like, epochs of media you know there's 90s television there's you know then the reality shows started and then now it's just this big huge branching thing so 
I think that's a really great thought and a really great point that video games can be a new entry point. I mean, there are all kinds of consoles and things like that. But even now, being able to port one game to another console is getting easier. It's getting smoother. And if you're, you know, a PC gamer, you have access to things. I would say in that case, you would have access to things nobody else would. But then if somebody plays, you know, PlayStation and they have the indies in that game store, you may not get to play them. So there's always going to be proprietary stuff. But that's just capitalism, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. But I think I think you kind of kind of hit on something there with the games because it's not just you know all these things that happened, you know uh, uh, the fantasy movies of the '80s, the sitcoms of the '90s, just all these things that defined these eras of media um, are now experienceable in these games and the interesting thing about it is that you're consuming the same media but you might have a different experience a hundred percent the other thing that just hit me is that when you're talking about like fantasy movies from the 80s these are beautiful works of art that are Mm -hmm. done and solidified and they are encapsulated in, you know, VHS or digital media. Like they are what they are. There's not updating them, but with video games, and this just hit me when I told you my kids uh, interested in Minecraft. And I was like, look at all these different versions. What does this mean? These, Mm -hmm. these art forms that are video games are constantly evolving and being added to where if it's a comic or even a movie where like they're rebooting star Wars and all that a million times, it doesn't have the same thing as like an update to a whole world that you are, that you are living in, in a video game. I think there's something interesting to the mythology, not being closed, if that makes sense. Like it's an open story in a lot of these games. That's, that's, there's something special about that. I think. Uh, Yeah, I think so too. And, and, you know, talking about that made me think about your, your son talking about the mods. Like Mm -hmm. if you were to make a never ending story fan film, that would still be a separate piece of art than the original one but if you make a mod for minecraft you are adding directly to that piece of art and it becomes participatory and and like some people play games full of mods and they'll only play it with the mods some people never touch mods at all some people only like visual mods like you know one of the biggest games is skyrim and that's been out for god like nine ten years now and people still mod it like like the original company supports the game and you know we'll occasionally do patches for upgraded systems and everything but people still mod it they have taken what was created and have reskinned things have added whole new quests have and you can choose to play the game so many different ways but it is still like touching that original art. And I think as an artist, you know, a a game studio and as an artist, you have to like, I've never been in this position, but you have to be willing if your game is going to be moddable, that you are handing over something you created and you're allowing people to change it, which can be incredibly uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Like, incredibly. 
I, I've said all the time, and I definitely feel firmly that as a creative or an artist or cartoonist or whatever you want to say, like once you put that thing out into the world, it's no longer yours to control. Like how people experience and interact with it is theirs and theirs alone. And man, video games take that to the, uh, the extreme for sure. As far as the mods and the reskinning and everything, I didn't even think about that aspect of it. Yeah. I mean like someone could redraw a panel you did or like edit it but you still have that original file or that original painting or whatever, that's still okay. And yeah, there's still going to be the original version of the code, but people are getting their hands all in your stuff with that. Like talking about that, I just had this memory pop up of like second grade and I used to draw these little like elaborate pencil drawings. And I remember this, this is so funny. I haven't thought of this in forever, but it was really distinct. I, I, I must've watched star Wars with the Ewoks because I friggin love the Ewoks and I remember drawing this little elaborate like tree city and showing it to a friend and he started drawing little stick figures in it and I remember being like appalled like what (laughs) are you doing I didn't say that was okay like you know that's that's you know kind of an equivalent if someone does a mod that changes the game there's maybe some developer somewhere going like it's not supposed to do that, that. stop no. it you know <laughs> i was just listening to an interview with peter chung the director and one of the creators of uh, aeon flux and uh, he he was saying that like how heartbreaking animation is and how he realized really quick that no matter how much you work on the director side or the the core concept art side there's such a a thing when you hand that off that you know mm-hmm. you're not going to get back what's in your head you know your hand even if you're handing it off to the best animators that are currently working you know they're not going to execute what's in your head because it's in your head and that was a really hard hump for him to get over mm-hmm. creatively and he started focusing a lot more on storytelling than the actual visuals of animation because he could control that storytelling he couldn't control so i wonder as these creators are working on these games if they're if that is affecting the stories they're telling with the games and like that control that most creatives do have that reaction you just explained having in second grade that like you're like no get those stick figures out of there and that, <laughs> There, there's a benefit to breaking that mindset though there's a benefit to like uh, that's my reaction 100 percent. get those stick figures out of there but there is something nice about getting those stick figures put in your drawing and having to stop and be like huh is that better is that okay like you know like that that as an artist is beneficial in my eyes but like, video games man i never even thought about all that but <laughs> I want to take this as an opportunity to transition slightly because you brought up drawing at a young age and I, I'm very interested in people's kind of creative origin story for lack of a better words. And it is making stuff something you've always gravitated towards. Um, yeah. And you know, what's funny. I was just thinking about some stuff while you were talking. Um, I, I, uh, was very ill when I was little. I had very bad asthma and I was um, born fairly premature. So from birth till about three or four, I was in and out of the hospitals a lot and often in like oxygen tents and stuff like that. So my parents would bring me paper and coloring books and all that. And I still have some like bizarre old drawings that I did and all this stuff. And I think that is, you know, talking about the origin story 
I uh, am, am, it's not an unusual one. A lot of people who are disabled or who become sick for a time or whatever, they talk about all they have is what's in their own head. And you sit with that. And my parents gave me the tools to sort of start expressing myself. So I've always actually just just really, really loved it. And um, it, it's interesting talking about handing over stuff because while I draw and do my, my own art, I'm, I'm weirdly private about it. And it's, it's almost like not by choice. And part of the reason it happened is it evolved over the years. And frankly, it, it got to be more that way um, when I started my career. Um, because, you know, I have all these old notebooks from even high school. And I remember showing people stuff and exchanging ideas. And at some point, I kind of stopped doing that because one of the things I fell into um, was graphic design, but on the production art side, which means everything I do is part of a group project. Everything I do is something like one of my biggest early jobs was um, I worked at an ad agency and one of my core responsibilities was packaging for this really big company, right? And so a graphic designer would design the package and it would come to me and it would be my job to replicate it, but then maybe it comes in cherry flavor or mm -hmm. it comes in this different version. So my art became very logical. Like I got, I've gotten really good at, um, the word just escaped me now, retrofitting and retro engineering and yes. going like, okay, this designer handed me this file, this, this, and this, I, I can figure this out. And that's what I do. Like even now I work for um, a company that does hospitality technology. So it's like signage and things like that. And I, things are handed to me and then I execute the logical portion of art. And so while and, and I don't mind it. I actually really enjoy it, but it's made me become really weirdly private about my own creative stuff. And, and it's not because I don't want to put it out there. It's just because like, I, I just don't because I've, everything I do now is part of some group project. Like yes. I worked for a band for six years and I edited videos for them. I learned how to record them in the studio. I, you know, I, I am the, the toolbox of art, you know, okay, we need yeah. someone to learn how to run the board because so-and-so is in here. It's like, okay, I will do that. Which, so everything I learned is an artistry, but it's like the practical side of it. So now I've gotten really weird about the imaginative side of it and I'm not into that. <laughs> so no, totally. <laughs> I, I love that story, Kate, for a few reasons. One, it's so different from all the other creatives I've talked to on here in a very special way in that a lot of the times these uh, this need to express and like this kind of like very youthful um way of interpreting the world and putting out your feelings on the pe on the paper is a very personal thing and in today's world of social media and everything else we're very uh encouraged to make it a 
shared thing when a lot of the stuff probably is a little bit more powerful if it is kept personal in a certain way. And I mm -hmm. do think there's like a very special thing about sharing things as well, but there's something just as special about the things you choose to keep private and personal. But in addition to that, you describing yourself as a, a you know, the, the logical tool side of the art, that is such an important side. And there are so many little creative nuggets that can pop out of thinking about the world in that way that I, I get why you uh, are trying to go back to the imagination. But I, I think about it in the way of like the Ramones a lot of the times in the mm -hmm. way that like uh, Tommy Ramone, who was the original drummer for the Ramones, he was not a drummer. He was a producer. He did exactly what you just said. He knew how to record bands in a studio, but he knew these group of dummies needed a drummer. So he was going <laughs> to figure out how to play the drums. And by doing that without knowing how to do it, he formulated a whole genre. Like if you listen to pop punk now, it is still based in that Ramones style oh, yeah. of drumming that was just made out of a, we're going to figure out how to do this. And I love how these beautiful creative things come about unintentionally through, well, fuck it. Someone's got to figure it out. So I'm going <laughs> to figure it out. And like, yeah I, I, yeah, I think that's such a valuable nugget of, of uh, kind of creative uh, uh, knowledge to have in your tool belt that like, even if it seems like you're, you're learning something that's a byproduct or a, a means to an end creatively, there's a creative way of experiencing that. And there's stuff that can pop out um out of th places you wouldn't expect and sometimes that's like the best stuff and that like it's one of the reasons i think like when people talk about ai and all of these new things that are coming on the scene that's the stuff that's missing to me is the idea that you can make a mistake or take something that is uh, seen as lack of proficiency and you can lean into that as a person and say this is where the magic is where if you're a algorithmic program that's just taking the most predictable next word or image then you lose that that unpredictableness that i think is inherent in creativity and yeah i love i love the idea that that's kind of where where you exist in some of this and <laughs> and <laughs> do you find that like the more that you've gone, it sounds like you've been doing this work for a while now. Do you find that you have had like little novel experiences like that from learning how to record a band or, or is there things that you get to take away and apply to your personal creative life? Oh yeah, definitely. And it's, and it's funny because I've been thinking more about this lately because I'm hoping, um, you know, I, I do freelance stuff on my own time. Like I've over the last few years, I've done a few logos and t-shirts and things like that for people. And um, I think what's happened is I, I'm going to backtrack a little and say that I, I like kind of being that weird little pixel pushing goblin, you know, behind the scenes. Yes. Um, and I, I'm, I just want to rephrase and say that like, it's made me shy about oh, sharing yeah. certain things. I, and I'm definitely someone who believes that, you know, some things are just for you and that's okay. But it's made me real shy about it because so many of the things were for other people or group yeah. projects. But to answer your question, um, I've absolutely had those moments because I would have to do something in one place and then be in a different situation and be like, wait, I know how to do this because I had to do this for so-and-so I, I can do this. And, 
you know, I can, I can apply it. And something else I found is that I think, and, and I'm going to go out on a limb here a little bit. I think because I'm not a very competitive person and because I thrive in a support role, um, and I do this honestly, and I do this earnestly and eagerly, this is, this is where I thrive. I think what it does is put me in a position to learn things from the people yes. I am doing things for because they realize I am supporting them. I want to support them. I've had, and I am so grateful. I've had so many instances where I've helped people who like a couple people who have won Oscars for the shit that they've done. And I've said wow. like, I'd like to build a puppet. I don't know how to do this. Well, you know what? How about we we zoom once or twice a week and you show me what you're working on and I'll I'll explain it to you. Like it's just you build this That's beautiful creative social capital because you know you are this support role and yes. everything can be a little competitive but even even when you're competitive I think having and it goes back to the empathy being able to to work with people and work with the situation, it, it comes around in the end and sometimes in a really good way. So yeah, I've absolutely had instances where I've done things and then been able to take that or the knowledge I gained from that group or that person or that experience and then apply it to something else. And, and I have loved that. Honestly, sometimes I feel like a little shy about it, but I, it works for me. Like it works for me. It's the, I feel like that's the way what you just described is such a more sustainable way to look at life in general. I've heard people like that idea of working with somebody and because you're in this support role and really helping bring uh, their vision to like manifest it, they're willing to help you in these other ways. And I think if we looked at life like that in general, it'd be a better uh, kind of, I don't want to say world because it's a weird, but it would, it would allow for this circular interaction that people like Douglas Rushkoff talk about. And he has this very simple example that I really love where a couple years ago, like if you had to hang a picture, let's say you would go to your neighbor and you didn't have a drill. You didn't have the means to hang that picture. Nowadays, you would go to Home Depot, you would buy a $30 drill, you'd use it once, it would sit in a closet, you might not use it ever again until it breaks. And then next time you need it, you go buy another one and throw that one out. And mm -hmm. I've been there where I've bought a tool for this one specific thing. And then it just sits and deteriorates like everything does. And a couple years ago, instead of going and wasting the money on buying that drill that doesn't serve our local community at all, you would go to your neighbor and say, Hey, could I borrow your drill? And that neighbor would probably be like, you know what, how about I come over and hang that picture for you? Because you might not know that you have to find a stud or that you have to do mm -hmm. these little things. And in exchange, he would say, you know what, you you seem like a nerdy little dude. You like math. Can you help my kid with math? Can you tutor my kid in exchange? And there's this circular exchange of value that exists that is kind of almost pushed down these days by monetary value. Like people want the money exchange and not the personal exchange and the information exchange that I think is so much more uh, sustainable and long-term has long-term benefits for local communities. So I, I love that example that you just provided where you can like 
work with people in more than just a way for you know financial support and you can make these connections that are so much more valuable than just the next job or the next you know uh, i got this connection to this other person for a job and that that seems like a healthier way or healthier world view in the long run for me yeah i i i really like the way that you put it and i think the ultimate and probably unattainable goal is a blend of everything. Because, you know, like, um, you're talking about that, that social capital, social circular credit and, and, and all that stuff. Like, um, I feel like nowadays, if, if you have a friend who builds websites and you want a website, um, I feel like, there's more of a willingness to, to pay them for their services, but at the same time, you know, they're going to do a little extra. They're going to do a little whatever. They're going to help you out a little bit more. Um, and I feel like that's, that's a nice realistic blend of things. I mean, and bringing back the community mindedness you just talk about is really important because I think one of the things that's squashing that is this, I feel, and then maybe this is for me and maybe this is just, you know, my trauma talking that we should all be self-sufficient in all things. Like, you know, I think there's a big balance between, you know what? I don't know how to hang a picture. I'm going to go learn about it and I'm going to do it. And you know what? Now I know how to do it. And being like, you know what? This is outside of my scope. I'm going to knock a hole in the wall. My neighbor, build stuff all the time. So I'm going to go ask them. I think it's just, just finding this balance of things like that. But I think there is a big push to be self-sufficient in every way, even when you can't like, I mean, like meal kits, meal kit delivery things are really big now. It's not unusual. Even in, in medieval times and ancient times, people went to an inn to get their dinner. They stopped at a food cart to eat. And you know what? If you want to save money and learn how to cook, that's great. But if you're someone with with a chronic condition or works odd hours or it's really hard for you to get stuff, then it's okay if you need to have someone else cook for you. You yes. know, it's, it's a, being realistic about it. Mm-hmm. No, there's a there's a balance to it all, like you said. And I think like anything else, the older that I get and the more that I try to be a little more thoughtful about life is it's all a balance and it's all it all comes down to paradox it seems it seems like whenever there Mm -hmm. is something that's really true there is a dichotomy or a paradoxical nature to the essence and Mm -hmm. the idea of not being afraid of paradoxes or not being afraid of of holding two truths at once that might contradict each other is really important I feel like especially in today's world that's just getting weirder and weirder people like eric davis talk about the global weirdening and i think that's <laughs> a real thing that's happening or terence mckenna's you know the novelty point at the end of time that we're speeding up to and like i think there is something to all of these things that are true but it's a it's a it's a yes end and a balance of both of those things that is going to kind of see us through to whatever the next step of this weird human experience experiment is or whatever you want to call it here yeah. whatever the hell we're doing and I, I i think that's one of my favorite parts about like 
uh, the paranormal or the world of the weird is that it calls you to get comfortable with living in paradox. It calls you to be okay with the idea that these things might be as much uh, effect of the psyche and a self-reflective experience as a physical and manifested mm -hmm. experience. And I think that's where like the magic in looking into the weirdness of the world is because the more that we can kind of hold the duality, the easier it will be to handle a lot of uh, big gray areas that pop up in the non-paranormal world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talking about duality with that, I know that this is not an, an, you know, an uncommon or old thought process, but I know there's kind of a big, I'm just going to use the word trend. There's a big trend right now that the calls coming from within the house, everything's yeah. a thought yeah. form, everything's a tulpa, everything's a, and you know what, there are so many instances where that can be true, but talking about holding two truths, like I don't believe everything is a projection. Like, yes. like, I believe that there could be an actual like flesh and bone Bigfoot and maybe someone thought about Bigfoot so much they made another Bigfoot, you know, like, or, yes. or fairies are real, real things or magic is really, really a thing that, that is a way to hack the fabric of reality, but also intention, which is just making it happen. Like, because we'll never fully understand all this stuff. So having that duality is, I think, something that's important because especially talking about the paranormal and stuff, which we are getting instruments that are more and more sensitive. You know, they're able to, they're doing experiments with intention now, picking up actual energy exchanges and, and portals and string theory and all that stuff. But at the same time, that means holding a truth that I, in my lifetime, may not have an answer. So yes. I have to believe both things or all things or, or see what works best for me and then be open to the exchange of ideas. And, you know, I'm occasionally someone who will die on a hill over something like sure. we all are, you know, yep. Yep. but yep. it's, it's developing that ability to talk to someone of a different faith or talk yes. to someone who has a different view on something and be able to say, you know what? I hear you. Um, that doesn't feel right for me. I'll think about it. I let's agree to disagree, you know, yes. and, and be able to just not be able to know, like there are obviously things that are hard lines, like it, when it comes to civil justice and human mm -hmm. rights mm -hmm. and things like that, you know, there's no, you know, let me hear your point of view, Nazi. Like it's, no, you know, no, <laughs> And, and that is such there's there's so much good stuff in what you just brought up there, Kate, that I absolutely love. And it's really funny that you just put that. So before we started talking, I've been working on a mural the last couple of days at a coffee roastery that I work with. And I've been just listening to a bunch of Terrence McKenna talks because I do that every couple of months. So anyone <laughs> that's listening to this string of interviews, you're going to hear me bring up McKenna a ton because he's one of my favorite people to listen to about things like the flying saucer phenomenon and stuff because he has such a a unique take on it that is not that unique really and has been around since like Carl Jung and older. But there's this quote I wrote out from him the other day that I'm just going to read because it's so 
apt to what you just said, and it, it's it's this. It's, uh, saying the flying saucer is a psychic object does not mean it's not a physical object. Jung went to great pains to state that the realm of the psychic and the realm of the physical meet in a strange never-never land that we don't have the tools to yet explore, and that is where the paranormal and the flying saucer reside. And I love that so mm-hmm. much because it's this thing that's telling us that we don't have it all figured out yet and we need to keep exploring. And even if our tools are getting more refined and we're being able to uh, to put materialist words and ideas to these to these spiritual um, experiences, there's always going to be that dichotomy. He also said this quote that I didn't write down, but something along the lines of that the UFO is a way of seeking clarity of what consciousness is. And until we define and understand truly what consciousness is, the phenomena will remain a mystery because that's the point of the mystery is to call us to figure out the bigger questions. And I love that, that these are just like, you know, almost uh, novelty injections that call you to to step outside of yourself for a minute and realize that we live in a very magical universe, that like mundane things all around us are as magic as all of the crazy experiences that we talk about in the world of the weird. And yeah, there's something really special to that juxtaposition of physical and spiritual that I think is uh, hard for a lot of people to understand and that, or to to get past that it's both at once. And I, I kind of love that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I try to be very fair when I, when I think about that stuff. And, you know, as far as my personal beliefs, though, like going back to Jung and everything, I think the archetypes have a purpose. Um, I believe in the collective unconscious in, in part of me almost believes the collective unconscious is part of a bigger thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we talk about the, the phenomenon, which I I think it's funny that people talk about the phenomenon because it's a safe way to talk about something bigger than yourself without making it a deity or a specific archetype. It's, it's, like when, when someone says, I'm sure everybody is something different, but when someone says the phenomenon, it's like the safe, neutral word for something that is watching you <laughs> and might be nudging you along a little bit to various points in your life or interacting with you a certain way. Or, you know, maybe it's it's a whole chorus of things that are you know you always see it in the movie the gods looking down on earth maybe it's a whole bunch of things that are Mm -hmm. doing that and I feel like you know the phenomenon is something that's big and pervasive and interweaves all between us but thinking of it that way is like is like a a safe way that's not going to blow your brain up (laughs) no absolutely our our view of stuff is so bound by our biology and our species. Like the way we view the world is so, uh, so centered around uh, the way that we view ourselves. So having these instances to really pull ourselves out of there and think about something that is truly other has been a theme in not only paranormal, but religions and spirituality. Like that's one of the things I love about going to people like Terrence McKenna or even Ram Dass and some of these Mm -hmm. more uh, Eastern spiritual people that talk a lot about UFOs and these kind of big um, uh, supernatural experiences that can come from living a reflective life in certain ways. And I, I love those connections. And I also think that there is, uh, there's something to the idea that these 
there's something to the idea with the way that we interact with time that whatever the phenomena or the other or this big thing is, <clears throat> excuse me, it values the way that we interact with this linear time structure we've created. Like if you look back to the Greek gods and the way that they would come down to interact, it's, and this is something that Vuk pointed out the other day that I loved. It's like they value the way that we can experience change, that these gods and the other, the phenomenon, it can't experience change the way that we do. So it comes here to have these human experiences of change. And there's other, excuse me. <clears throat> I don't know why my throat just got all weird, um, but there's <laughs> other uh, experiences that I love where these uh, people, whether it's on psychedelics or through a genuine or I guess what you would call a more typical paranormal experiences, they're kind of communicated that the reason that this other entity is interacting with them is because they came here to grow ideas in time and they need us to grow ideas because ideas don't exist unless there's a linear, uh, you know, time structure for them to expand and grow in and i mm -hmm. love that idea that there's something like special about the way that we experience time that this phenomenon that's been around for however long or you know it, it could be a million different things inside that umbrella phenomenon as far as different spiritual entities and stuff but that there's something special about us weird little meat sacks that they need to come <laughs> here to get get something out of you know oh yeah and you know you talking about that it's it's interesting because you said the reflective nature of it and that kind of goes back to the whole um uh, for example we'll pick pick ghosts i'm just going to use the word ghosts spirits mm -hmm. entities you know i hold a dual thought process there too i do believe some of them are thought forms i do believe that some of them are you know repeating situations and who's to say they aren't someone who has now in another plane of existence reflecting themselves back because they are wanting to re-experience that linear moment in that portion of their existence. Yes. And it's funny that you talk about that because I've noticed as myself when the, the times that I have done what you would consider, you know, a paranormal investigation specifically based around spirits or energies or entities, um, I tend to get a certain flavor of reaction and it's made me think about like, am, am, I ref, am I projecting that and it's reflecting back to me as, as if the literal tulpa or thought form or, mm -hmm. or whatever, or am I putting out a certain flavor of energy and things drawn to that are saying, I, I can interact with this, this being, this person, I can come to them and express, you know, the flavor of the thing I want to express. Yes. And I, so that's been kind of a weird experience for me thinking about it because like I, I was at something not three weeks ago and we had three different um, multiple communication methods, but uh, specifically we used uh, the Estes method a couple of times from, you know, by Carl Pfeiffer and Connor Randall mm -hmm. and um, three completely distinct pers personalities went under. And one of them was me and mine was apparently goofy as hell. Like <laughs> I, I have to listen back to it, but I remember like I had the Vic first like drummer headphones on. I couldn't hear a damn thing. And at some point I said something and I have this vague memory of everybody laughing so hard. I could almost hear it through the headphones. And yet I the other it. two were totally different. And then other times I've done it, I've had the same thing. So it's like, 
it's it's reflective and I think maybe in some ways invitational. I don't know if that makes I, any sense. It makes a ton of sense. And one, I just have to mention that I, I love that. It, it is, uh, if you didn't know, it's National Goof Off Day, I heard on the radio driving. <laughs> I, I did so not it's, know. Yeah, yeah. They're encouraging people to scroll through Instagram as their way of goofing off at work. And I was just like, oh, my God, that's the best you can do. I can think of <laughs> 10 million other better ways to goof off. Um, but I, I think there's something 100% there. And I always think about... Because I think that ties into this idea of how important our uh, ingesting of mythology and our exposure to these ideas at an early age via stories and folklore uh, play a part in the way that we experience them as we grow up. Because there's a quote from Whitley Strieber that uh, Jeff Kripal writes in their book they did together, Supernatural, where he essentially says that if he grew up on a better science fiction, his experiences with the aliens or the other or whatever, the visitors, wouldn't have been so horrifying. That the, the stuff he was exposed to growing up via these very cheesy, um, very kind of harsh, scary science fiction mm -hmm. movies are what inform those experiences. And I think there's something really... Uh, there's a there's a resonance of truth to that, especially when you start looking at other cultures in the world that are a little bit more accepting of things outside mm -hmm. of our everyday and how they're not, uh, you know, they're not running into these experiences with a, a grain of fear so, that's so deep in there that they can't get rid of. And I try and think about that with the way I expose my kids to these ideas, because even growing up, I think about the stuff I watched and it was all ghostbusters you're hunting the other it was scooby-doo you're constantly debunking and it's always a hoax and like all of these interactions with the paranormal that were presented in these mythologies were very antagonistic and had an element of fear based in them and i think there's a way to present these ideas not necessarily with like taking all the fear out of it but inserting more curiosity and wonder than antagonism or fear and if we grow up on that type of culture surrounding the big mystery, the capital M mystery, maybe these experiences will be a little less terrifying off the bat. Maybe when you mm -hmm. run into that like shadow entity in your bedroom as a kid, you're not going to like be uh, you know, reacting as if you're horrified right off the bat. And I think about this in, uh, sorry, I just hit my microphone. I think about this in the way of like set and setting and act, for the ninth million time, we'll bring up Terrence McKenna because he talks about this <laughs> in the way of taking mushrooms that you can take those five dried grams of psilocybin, but if you don't interact with the mushroom and ask the mushroom questions and come to the mushroom with, with a bit of playfulness, then it's going to throw you around. And I think oh, yeah. about that with experiencing the other, if we can't at these scarier experiences instead of being you know terrified of dog man off the bat being like hey dog man what's up what are you doing here like would that completely dissolve the uh the experience or that uh antagonistic and fear-based element of the experience and i think your example of having three people go under the estes method in a in the exact same situation have three different experiences highlights that so well and it really drives home my favorite part of all of this, which is that we undervalue our imagination and we use imagination in the wrong way. Like people use the word imagination to mean not real and to me made up and fictional where the, the things 
that we can do with our imagination are more real a lot of the times than the tables we touch or like these the idea Mm -hmm. i love how alan moore explains it that the idea of a chair is more important than the physical chair because that physical chair is going to deteriorate it's going to break down and you're not going to be able to use it eventually but as long as we have the idea of a chair we'll always have someone somewhere to sit because we always have someone to remake the chair but if we lose the idea we're done Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, talking about this kind of cycles back to the video games and the media and everything, like, again, I am really grateful for how my parents handled my upbringing. They were just like, yeah, yep, be weird, you know, (laughs) like, so the stuff I experienced talking about those 80s fantasy movies, um, there was wonderment, there was curiosity, you were joining with the fantastical creatures to, to do the quest or the thing. And I think a lot of times, and, and, you know, I can only speak for the the English language, because my other linguistic skills are enough to like, get me in trouble if I try and speak (laughs) them in a foreign country. But like, you could argue, you know, all emotions, all shades of emotions come from fear or, or love. Anger is the type of being afraid, you know, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And so I think people use the word fear a lot. And I think if you really look at it and you start breaking down, like in this case, an encounter, right. Um, you could use the word reverence or, Mm, or things like, like, or awe, like unsettling, like, okay. Mm. Um, seeing that shadow in the corner is not welcome. It's unsettling. But if you react in a certain way that reaches to that heart pounding fear, like, are you feeding the thing? Are you coloring your experience? It's okay to be like, I, I don't want that thing standing at the end yep. of my bed every night. That's not cool. But being able to, to pass that point of, I am seeing something just so unusual right now and to be able to to pass the point of that animal reaction and think okay what do I do about this I think is something that a lot of people don't have the ability to do so and not from any fault of their own but because they're they're given two reactions fear or or anger or fight it or it's different, so it's wrong, you know, like having that duality of, and also admitting you don't like something is okay. Like, I know this has been said in like a million movies and stuff, but like, there's a difference between courage and, and bravery and all that stuff, because you can be brave and still be like, scared out of your mind. Yes. (laughs) So, and it always comes back to that ability to accept holding more than one truth at a time. Yeah. Because that that fear is a part of the bravery. Like bravery, you wouldn't be being brave if you weren't scared of it. So it's absolutely same thing with like people talk a lot about how like I I love like Joshua Cutchins' new book about the ecology of souls and how there's a death mm-hmm. theme to all of this. But you can't talk about the theme of death without the, the theme of birth and that there's this giant creation and this uh, this other side of all of it that's inherently there and I I think there's something really special about keeping those ideas in your head and I I love the idea that exactly like you said it, it's 
it's finding that way to condition ourselves to not be scared of the other in a certain way. And I, again, going back to the media we grow up on, I think really plays a big role in that. And I've noticed recently, actually, because of all of these new social movements, there's been a lot of kids shows that are using the paranormal as a metaphor to talk about accepting other people that are different than you and i think Mm -hmm. that is a really beautiful way to use the paranormal in kids media because it is a such a strong line there and there's a mickey mouse clubhouse episode i talk about a lot because it does exactly that where mickey and his crew show up at this old this old west town and they're trying to have a hoedown but all these ghosts are there and at first they're really scared but then they realize that the ghosts are already having their own, their own hoedown and they should just combine parties and all have fun together. And the ghosts just want to have fun. And I love that that's the message where, I mean, the Mickey Mouse ghost stories I grew up on, literally he's carrying a gun and like, you know, trying yeah. to shoot this ghost. Like it's such a different perception of that. Of And I think there's a lot of value to almost utilizing the paranormal and the world of the weird and these things to accept, be more accepting of not just other ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures, but that idea that I think this gets at that we are all connected. And like when you really start getting a little deeper in the weird, there's so many themes of of panpsychism and animism and all of these things Mm -hmm. that hint at that we are all the same. And if you really accept that worldview, which I think the paranormal can help you do, then it's so much harder to be mean to other people or to do things that cause direct harm to things that you know are as that have as much value as you do and i think that that's one of the biggest um kind of functional things you can take away from getting into this stuff Uh, you know what that's a really good point and you know talking about growing up stuff like the the stuff i consumed was different than the stuff you consumed like you know i watch ghostbusters and everything but you know my my parents showed me those fantastical movies and you know, I had, we had the Brian Froud fairy books and I love yes. to look through the fairy books and, and my parents, it's so funny. Like they probably didn't even realize they were doing this, but they didn't actively push me in one way or the other. They just kind of kept an eye to make sure, you know, I was safe and all that stuff. But like I grew up, there's a big one on the X-Files and, yep. and yeah, you got the big conspiracy stuff, but, but so often Mulder was right. There, there was a ghost or there was a this or there was a that. And in sometimes in those monster of the week episodes, the crux of the matter is the monster of the week and the federal government misunderstood each other. And that's what the problem was, you know, (laughs) and like, it's, it definitely puts you in that place. And I will say sometimes for myself, um, I struggle because, and there's no way to say this without sounding pompous but it's really easy because of how I grew up and because of the media I consumed and being a weird person myself to to be take that breath and hear the other person's side for a moment to the point that it occasionally gets me in trouble because again there are hard lines and I'm like I'm gonna let you talk and then I'm gonna walk away because I want nothing to do with you you know no absolutely nothing to do with that or I'm gonna stop you from doing that because you're gonna hurt somebody you know but I think it it really is the case like when you're introduced early to these things and and to not go completely off the rails there is so much about 
what is hardwired into us happens during our years when we are being taken care of, whether by parents or family or a caregiver, and mm-hmm. that hardwires how we react to things. And if you're raised in a certain way, I, I think it makes it even harder to yes. open up later. And I think that's what causes people who get into the paranormal, but they're going around screaming and yelling everything at everything and, and mm-hmm. being just angry. And, and it's like, why are you even doing it if you hate it? Yes, absolutely. You know? That's that is such a good point. I yeah, I love that. And I think there's so much value just utilizing these things to live a more self-reflective life, I think is so important. There's a uh one of my favorite studies that's going or that has gone on that um Mitch Horowitz talks about is the work of mm-hmm. Professor Bem and out of Cornell. And essentially, I'm, I'll do a very short version of this because it's way too complicated for me to explain properly. But essentially, <laughs> there was a and I did an episode with Mitch that he explains it beautifully or just search Mitch Horowitz in any podcast he's on. And he pretty much talks about this. And it's one of my favorite things. But it's this idea of retro causality. And what this um, Professor Bim did in Cornell was a very long-term study where he would have two groups of people take a test. One group, one of the people would, uh, or one of the groups of people would stay after and review the test and go over what they got right, go over what they got wrong, talk about why they think they got it wrong, etc. The other group would just leave. There was a statistic significance that I can't remember exactly, but it was very significant in the group that reviewed the test doing a lot better on the test. And there was all of this meta-analysis and all of these different ways of studying this this, uh, experiment done to essentially flush out in the math that there is a statistic benefit to reviewing things that you've done, that there seems to be a retrocausal effect of reviewing whatever the action that you just took was. And I, even if that is not proven out scientifically at all ever, I love the idea that science is starting to back these very base um, kind of spiritual ideas that self-reflection and reflecting on how you act is as important as the action that you took. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's talking about how science is starting to catch up with things. There's a lot more um, in the medical community. Uh, my, my husband is a rural clinician and there's a lot more in the medical community um, about accepting, you know, the, the word I can think of it is the body mind. Like he's yes. starting to understand someone is very, very stressed and that is causing their shoulders to be a certain way and this to be a certain way. And you have to be reflective and you have to like everything is all tied together. And whether those people were viewing that test were like accessing the collective unconsciousness and being like uh, or collective consciousness, sorry, and being like, uh, OK, you know, I'm comparing my answers. I'm reviewing these things. Or if if your brain is so complicated. There are micro logic leaps. It's Mm -hmm. making every millisecond. It's like, it's beautiful and wonderful either way. And I think it's everything all at once, you know? And and defining the mechanism isn't 
as important to me. And I know it's important for a lot of people, but I, I definitely go back to that Jeffrey Kripal quote where I am more about the meaning than the mechanism. I want to know what the voice on the other end of the telephone has to say. I don't care how the telephone works. Like I'm exactly. All about, it's it's know. the outcome and it's repeatable. And you know what, even if you can't put the numbers on it, it happens over and over and over again. So, you know, it's, it's definitely worth yeah. paying attention to. Yeah. And I love that mind body connection you just spoke of. I've listened to a few podcasts with uh, this author, Stephen Kotler, that he is a flow researcher and has done a lot of research into uh, creative states and stuff. But he just wrote a new book about aging, essentially. And there's all of these studies that show that physically aging or aging is a physical thing, but getting old is a mindset. And mm -hmm. there's like solid scientific studies that say like, if you can change the way you look at your medical situation, it's almost more beneficial sometimes than taking the physical steps of he uses obesity, which is a very interesting one to me. But essentially, there's these studies that show that if people can change their mindset of the way they view themselves, they can add more years of life than actually losing weight in certain instances and stuff like that mm -hmm. is just like, you know, mind blowing in certain ways and can be taken the wrong way in a lot of other ways. But there are all of these ideas that are reinforcing these cliches. Like you're only as old as you think you are, or you feel, or you're only as old as you think you are. And that is actually be proven scientifically now. And that's really interesting oh, yeah. to me that like, there's, there's these resonance of truth to these like uh, ubiquitous sayings and culture that it seems like science is now catching up to and being like, oh yeah, here's the facts behind all of this and why you should actually like stop saying that you feel like you're old and that your back hurts because the more you tell yourself that, the more your back's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, that's something my husband always talks about. Like he tries to um, you know, obviously he doesn't tell me much because of confidentiality, but, you know, just as a person, he tries to look at their frame of mind and, and their mood and all that stuff and, and address whatever the problem is. And as someone myself, um, I am a pretty severe trauma survivor. I've been in, I'm not ashamed of it. I've been in therapy for about six years and I will tell you, and, and I'm very lucky. I found an amazing therapist who not only is smart about neurological stuff and, and, you know, talk therapy, but also put stock in the body, mind and spirituality and the phenomena and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I find that the farther along I get in my, my mental healing, I am physically doing better. And yes. it's just like really, really amazing how everything is connected like that. And I think acknowledging that, and, and again, it just keeps going back to that duality, holding both truths, being able yeah. to learn is so beneficial. And, you know, I, I'm going to have to look up a lot of books after after talking to you, but you should definitely um, check out Personal Pans by Vanessa Wilico. She does great work about play and the body, mind and trauma connected to the weird and the paranormal and spirituality. And she's just this super smart person. But it's, it's just amazing how this web is all weaved together. And it's just about accepting it and, and looking at different ways to understand it. And what is, what is that quote? Sufficiently advanced science is just magic. 
Yep. You know, absolutely. (laughs) I could absolutely. Kate, I think this is a beautiful place to wrap up this conversation here. I absolutely loved this. Seriously. I didn't get, so my whole, I don't really take notes for these things, but I (laughs) plan to just talk to you about puppets and the weirdness that exists in puppetry and stuff. And we didn't even get to touch on that. There's, I haven't read the book, but I love this podcast called weird studies. And they interviewed Mm -hmm. a author named Victoria Nelson that wrote a book called the secret life of puppets. And it's one (laughs) of my favorite podcasts. And it just talks about uh, viewing the world through puppetry and how weird Mm -hmm. of a culture it is. And I, yeah, I was, I got to have you back on so we can dive into some of those things because this was a super fun conversation and I feel like we could talk for another hour about just that. (laughs) So (laughs) Um, thank you for having me on. And anytime you just want to talk, I, I actually love talking to people. So (laughs) wonderful. Well, I'm going to take you up on that because this was, yeah, it's so funny doing these podcasts and stuff and talking to such a wide range of people in which I have never previously talked to outside of like in direct message or something Mm -hmm. you 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 can feel who you resonate with in different ways and this is not a slight to any of my past guests like I loved having so many people on but I feel like uh, I I really resonated with this conversation and I'm leaving it feeling really good so I'd love to do it again (laughs) either recorded or not recorded so (laughs) thank you same anytime thank you so much this was wonderful I really appreciated it Absolutely. Do you want to tell people at all where to find you or anything like that? If not, don't worry about it. But I always like to offer if there's anything oh my you gosh. want to put out there. I, I I never know what to answer to this question, basically because yeah. of what we talked about. Like that's what I'm I trying. feel. I'm like, do I even <laughs> offer at this point? Like I have to. But. I I would like to. Um. So the Instagram is a pretty good place where I'm going to start putting more art, and that's Steam Powered Mouse. Um. So you can reach out to me there. Um, I do welcome people to email me. Uh, it's steampoweredmouse at gmail.com. I'm happy to talk to people and I'm going to try to get over my shyness and put some more of my weird drawings up. So, <laughs> well, you, you didn't come across shy at all in this conversation, Kate. Oh, like, you, oh, wonderful. like, this was <laughs> a, a very wonderful, open conversation that I feel like I, I'm, I'm surprised, you know, I'm surprised to hear the shyness after having this conversation, but I, I love that you're putting yourself out there more. It's great. Thank you. I generally um, hide behind puppets and other people. So, <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for coming out from behind the puppets for an hour here to talk with me. I really, I really loved it. And I hope you have a wonderful day and we'll definitely do it again soon. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care.